Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. All right, everybody. Help me in welcoming Dr. Stephanie Estima, a wonderful friend. I'm super excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, I'm, it's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me, Doc. So I'm so excited because we have uh, some amazing news that, that you've uh, written a book and it's finally on its way out. And I absolutely love the title. I love the concept. I love the idea of helping to represent women a little bit more in, in this uh, functional medicine and the ability to understand that there are some differences between males and females. So tell me a little bit about uh, the book and who it's kind of targeted towards and who it's going to help. Sure. Yeah. So this book has been a child that I have birthed over the past. I mean, you know this, you're an author as well. So like getting the book finally finished, it feels like I have, you know, I have three children. This is my fourth child. I've birthed my book baby. So this book is for women somewhere between the ages of 35 to about 50, 55. So she is entering perimenopause and really wanting to, this is for a woman who is really wanting to learn about how to appropriately respond to her body as she's noticing that her body is beginning to change, particularly as it relates to her menstrual cycle. And, you know, we were talking in the pre-chat and you said, you know, I think that the name of it's so great, the intention of it's so great. So the name of the book is called The Betty Body, and that is named after the fans of my podcast. It's called uh, The Better Podcast. And we started calling our fans Bettys, and it just stuck. Right. So this book, it's named for any woman who's looking to optimize her hormones, who's looking to learn how to appropriately respond, how to eat for a woman, uh, how to balance out her hormones and how to use some of the tools that we talk about in the book. I know that we'll be unpacking that in terms of how to optimize her experience in life, because we are not little men. That's the thing that kind of keeps coming up, right? We try, and I've, I tried this myself for years. I tried to eat, you know, I would follow the keto diet. I tried to do it like all the, all the guys were doing it. I tried to fast, like all the guys were doing it and ended up really messing around with my own natural cadence, my own natural menstrual cycle. Um, as a result, we can go in any direction that you like, but this is really for any woman who is kind of determined to take back and empower herself to learn how to appropriately respond to the ever-changing hormonal milieu and hormonal landscape that she is, that she is marinating in. I absolutely love that. It's, it's such a clear picture of who you're trying to help. And the fact that you attempted these things on your own. You actually went through a lot of these challenges on your own. So it's very much your journey and how you can help other women optimize their hormones on their journey. And why don't we just jump right into there? Uh, let's talk a little bit about your journey. So you said you tried intermittent fasting, kind of like the men do, and you tried the keto diet like the men do. And there were some differences and little nuances that are really important to figure out in the difference between how men's bodies and women's bodies and hormones respond differently. So why don't we dig into that a little bit? Tell me about your journey. Sure, absolutely. So I will say that even before I started trying to act like a man, I wasn't really attuned with my own cycle. So I would never track my cycle. I, it just sort of, you know, I, I knew that it was coming because I would experience the worst PMS, like all the things that I'm sure you see in clinic, it's like the tender breast, the sleep disturbances, the moodiness, the emotion. And I just would try to 
you know, almost like white knuckle my way through it. Like I, this is just, I can't deal with this right now. I am going to try no matter what I'm going to keep to the diet that I'm eating. I'm going to keep to the fitness regimen I'm doing. I'm going to keep to the, and what it would end up happening is I would be, you know, I'd at, at some point I would cave, I'd raid the pantry, all the chips and the cookies and the crackers would be gone. And then I'd sort of be in the fetal position, you know, in the corner somewhere in the aftermath. And every single month I would ask myself like, what, is wrong with me? Like, why can't I do this all month long? Like, why can I do it in like the first week or two of my cycle or, you know, for two weeks that, you know, not really thinking about how this connected to my cycle. And then the next two weeks are a gong show. Like, why is it always two steps forward, two steps back? Like, why can't I ever make any progress? So for me, the light bulb went off when my partner and I, we took our family to Italy uh, one summer. So prior to that, it was like periods were just like my nemesis. I hated them. And then in Italy, I was sleeping a lot. And you know, like Italian fare, right? It's like lots of cappuccinos, lots of pizza, lots of pasta. But towards the end of that vacation, I got my period. And normally that would be the worst. It would like ruin everything. Like I would be, you know, holed up in the room, like, you know, trying to sleep all day. But it, it didn't, that didn't happen. It was this beautiful, it sort of came and it was there and then it left. And I thought to myself, okay, so I get that everything's better in Italy. Like I know that like, you know, food is better in Italy, like life is better there, but can I take this back home to Toronto? Can I bring this back home to my life? Because if I can do it in Italy, I can like, even though there's, you know, maybe there's a different environment, I can still try to see if I can replicate that. So I kind of put my head down and went into the lab, so to speak. Like I was still in clinical practice at the time. So I was experimenting both on myself uh, with my patients, with my female patients who let me uh, use them as my guinea pigs. And what I found was if we were able to alter the macronutrient composition of the diet through the cycle, and we can, we can break down what that is for your listeners. And if we could change the way that we fasted and change the way that we trained with the way that we were exercising to match the physiological landscape of my cycle or my patient's cycle, then we were able to mitigate, we were able to negate the cravings and the moodiness and the breaking down and raiding the pantry kind of thing. So that was really my big discovery was it's not that my body was broken or working against me. It was just that I wasn't responding appropriately to it in Toronto. I learned how to do it in Italy because I was on vacation and I was forced to rest. I was in my parasympathetics, right? And I'm sure you talk a lot about this on the podcast, like sympathetics and parasympathetics, like that's our jam, right? Um, So bringing that parasympathetic state, learning how to do that, and also learning, again, this idea of appropriately responding to your body based on what she's telling you. And there's so many women that I work with and that tell me all the time, like, my symptoms is like, is it me or is it my hormones? It's like, well, those two things are not separate, right? Like your symptoms and your hormone, like your body's language, if she is telling you something through a symptom, that's not the impetus to try and silence it. That's her saying, hey you know, something's wrong here. Like I have digestive issues. Maybe there, maybe I want to look at the amount of probiotics or the amount of fiber or the amount of butyrate or all the things, right. That can impact gut motility and gut dysbiosis and hyperpermeability. So I say all of that, and we can, we can dive into like how I structure food generally uh, for my clients who are first coming in to see me, who are doing the Betty protocol. First, I typically will divide a woman's menstrual cycle into roughly four weeks, right? So we've talked about, you and I've talked about this before. I talk about women being lunar, right? And men being solar. 
So when we think about lunar, we think about a moon cycle, it's about 28, 29 days. And women tend to follow that cadence in terms of going through our entire hormonal uh, variations in that 28, 29 day period. Now, of course, there's like a spread, right? So anything from like 26 to call it 32, we consider normal. So when I divide it into four weeks, you might be a little shorter than that for you it might be instead of seven days in each phase, it might be six, uh, it might be seven and a half to eight days in each phase. So just kind of when I talk about this, just kind of keep that in mind that we're talking roughly 28 days. So the first week is obviously your bleed week, right? Like the day that you get your period, that's when you start, that's day one of your cycle, even though we like the main event of your, of your menstrual cycle is ovulation, which happens around, you know, day 12 to 14, but we start at day one because it's like, you can measure it. Like you start, you know, bleeding at that time. So for the first seven days or so, what we want to be doing, and actually I would say generally for the first two weeks in that follicular phase is we are much more resilient to restricting carbohydrates and engaging in fasting. So this is why I used to say to myself, like, why can I only do this for two weeks at a time? Like it's because that first two week cycle or that first two weeks of your menstrual cycle, we are much more resilient to restricting carbohydrates, maybe to having a moderate amount of protein and increasing our fat. And the reason why that's important for women, this is true for men and women, but when we are in a carbohydrate appropriate or carbohydrate restricted, when we're restricting our carbohydrates, we are able to initiate a lot of physiological cascades, including autophagy, which I'm sure you've spoken about. Autophagy is basically the cleaning of our cells. Now that happens all the time, but when you are particularly restricting carbohydrates or one macronutrient, in this case, we're doing carbs because we can do it in the first two weeks of our cycle. When you're restricting uh, a macronutrient, you will increase the relative amount of autophagy. So it's kind of like, I always liken it to like Pac-Man, right? So Pac-Man is like the yellow, if you remember or maybe I'm dating myself, I don't know. But if you, you know, that like yellow Pac-Man that kind of goes around and eats all the little dots, right? So the more you are able to carbohydrate restrict, the more dots you're going to get. So you're going to be able to get to the next level. And physiologically, what's happening, of course, is we are cleaning up old cells, nuclear debris, pieces of nucleotide and mitochondria. Like you also have mitophagy, which is the same process just with our mitochondria, which is the I mean, I know I'm singing to the choir here, doc, but just for your listeners, right? Like the, you know, mitophagy is our mitochondria, the battery packs of our cells. They are the things that create energy. So when we have sort of older, slower mitochondria, of course, they're going to be less and less efficient at creating energy. So if you are able to amplify autophagy, you're now cleaning out some of these older cells and you are going to replace them with new native cells that are new, brand new, shiny, sparkly, and, and they work quicker. So we have autophagy, of course, we have the effect on our brain, right? So you talk about this in terms of, I know you wrote a book on the vagus nerve and the parasympathetics. When we think about the brain using ketone bodies, so when you're restricting your carbohydrates, you will start to produce an alternate energy source called ketone bodies. And those ketone bodies are much more efficient. Like they produce much less oxidative damage than using sugar, like using glucose as, as a substrate for energy. So just for the listener, if you've never heard of that before, we sort of have two modes in terms of where our energetic sources come from. So it can either be sugar, we are either using the carbohydrates, the proteins, uh, the dietary fats from our diet, or we are taking it internally. So you're either in a glycolytic state or a sugar burning state, or you're going into your own fat stores break and opening up the fat store inside the fat. Of course, we have the triglycerides, the triglycerides, the, you know, and that's what eventually becomes the ketone body. 
So using ketone bodies is really great for women because we often hear, especially in that like 35 to 40 age, she starts to notice brain fog. Like that's a really big thing that I hear. Like I just get this brain fog and then like the last two weeks or especially the week before my period. So being able to use ketone bodies is really going to help her brain fog and her mental clarity, her focus and her awareness or her sharpness rather. So that's really important. So we do that for week one. In week two, uh, so week two is, uh, you know, your period is over. And this is the week leading up to ovulation. Okay. So that's what I call the main event. That's actually the point of your period, right? It's to ovulate, to release an egg from the follicle. And this is a very special week. So this is when we see the peak of when we're looking at hormones, we see estrogen. She goes from like you know, in week one, she can go as low as like five picograms per, per deciliter. And then in week two, she can like shoot up to like 300, you know, or 350 picograms per deciliter. So this is like a huge, we had this huge, uh, like hockey stick apex of estrogen. And this is the reason why this is happening is of course, to mature the follicle. So we want to try and estrogen is a trophic, it's a growth factor. Mm -hmm. So we want estrogen to be de helping develop that one special follicle with the egg inside it. And the other thing that we see in this week is we see testosterone. So testosterone peaks in this week. And for women, this is often the week where they will feel like super extroverted, very, you know, even like with their partner, uh, they might feel very flirty, very sexy, you know, libido is really high. And we really want to profit off of that testosterone peak. So what I like to do in terms of the macronutrient composition of the diet here is I actually like to switch up the keto and I like to move it more to a higher protein content in her diet. So, you know, if we were to say in week one, if she's doing more of a ketogenic diet with low carbs, I might break that down. Like depends on the person, but you know, generally I might say like 70% fat, 20% protein, 10% carbohydrates. It's like a nice number for most women. In that second week, I would bring the fat down and bump up the protein. So instead of doing 70, I would bring down her fat to about 40%. Her protein would double. So go from 20% to 40%. And then her carbs would be the same, or maybe a little bit more, be 20% carbohydrates. And what that's doing, uh, especially for this age group, this like 35 to like 50 person age group is it's driving muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. So we can geek out. I know that I'm, I'm talking a lot here, but, but basically it's really important for women as we think about longevity, as we thinking about aging well is to put on as much lean muscle mass as we can. And there's two ways to do that. One is in the gym and the other way is through your diet. So if you are able to increase your protein to match the increase in the testosterone, you are going to drive more MPS, more muscle protein synthesis. So that's kind of week two. Week three is like after ovulation now. So we've ovulated the entire hormonal landscape now changes. And if you are someone who has PMS, I like to think of PMS as like mini menopause, right? So if you are having a lot of symptoms in this time period of your cycle, this is like a mirror. This is your body talking to you saying, listen, like all is not well here. So in week three, just for brevity, I will bring her macronutrient composition back down to that kind of keto that we did in week one. And then in week four, which is the week before her period, like this is usually the worst week for most women. It's like they feel puffy and all the things that are happening. So I will increase her calories 
So by about 10 to 15%, we increase your calories. And that, like, when I say that often women are like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? <laughs> like, I don't want to gain weight. And it's like, I promise you, you won't because your body is building an endometrial lining. It is building this new organ. It requires more energy from you. So it's either going to send you to the pantry and like clear out the pantry, or you can do it in the form of green leafy vegetables where we're getting the resistant starches and the fiber and all the beautiful phytonutrients that we get there. So in week four, I will bring like everything goes up. So we had just have more fats, more proteins, more carbs, uh, good carbs, like not the Haagen-Dazs and the cookies and the chips and all that. But like, like I was saying, the green leafy vegetables that are really going to help quell your cravings. They're going to help with your sleep because we know the more fiber, phytonutrients, and even resistant starches that you can take in, that's going to create this short chain fatty acid called butyrate. And that's going to really help with, you know, we call it butyrate for beauty sleep, right? So lots of, um, I know I went on like a, a geeky magic carpet right there, but that's like the sort of overview um, of how I would modify a woman's eating. And of course we can talk about training and fasting and supplements as well, but that's like the big thing that most women can start to do to help sync up to their cycle. I love that. It's it's such a clear path. There's so many practical steps in each being able to kind of understand and it and it almost allows you to be on a cyclic keto pattern at the same time, which yeah. we now know cycled keto is actually really helpful not only for people that are trying to lose weight if that is kind of the goal, but cycled keto works really well in longevity in creating autophagy, mitophagy, making sure that the cellular environment internally is functioning optimally. So that's a really important piece of the puzzle here. And then the other piece that I, I think I'd love to add on there is that last week where we're adding on more of those deep leafy green vegetables, we're really working on eliminating the excess estrogen. We're trying Correct. to make sure that methylation is working correctly, that you have enough folate to ensure that this whole pathway is occurring correctly. Really also important that we have some protein in there because we're also from those protein sources going to be receiving a lot of B12. So B12 and folate are the two really important pieces in that methylation pathway in helping to ensure that any excess estrogen or any excess hormones, neurotransmitters, et cetera, are being released from the body effectively. And that's a really, really important piece of the puzzle. So that cycled plan, according to the weeks, actually works really well. It's really clear. So thank you for going through that. It was really wonderful. I love that. Yeah. And I, to your point, I think that, you know, when a woman, like the number one thing I never allow, you know, in terms of symptoms is tender breasts, right? If someone's like, oh my God, my breasts, you know, they're so swollen. I can't hug people. It's like, okay, you need sulforaphanes. And with the sulforaphanes are in the green leafy vegetables, as you said, because we can now drive a healthy estrogen metabolism. So we can drive it down that 2-OH pathway, which is going to, you know, often when a woman is feeling like she's having that tenderness or she's having the tender breasts, it's often an indication. Of course, you also need to do lab tests to, to verify it. But clinically, when I see a woman who gets tender breasts, she's often favoring some of these metabolic paths. Like this, when we think about the way that estrogen is metabolized, there's these three main pathways. She's typically going down that 4-OH, quinone, DNA damaging pathway. So when we can give her the green leafy vegetables, like you know, anything from the brassica family. So like cauliflower and broccoli and bok choy and Brussels sprouts and cabbage, any of these things are going to help drive healthy estrogen metabolism. And for anyone, the other thing I'll often ask, and I thank you so much for reminding me of this. When a woman does have her period, I will often ask her to look at the quality of the bleed. So do we have clots? 
are you, you know, for me for years, I knew, and it was so funny when I would go into practice the day I would get my period, I would have to bring two pairs of pants. Cause I knew for sure my flow was going to be so heavy that I was going to need to change my pants. So like the flow, the cramping, clotting, what's the size of the clot? Is it bigger than a, like, I will allow like up to about a dime size of a clot. Anything larger than that is really a sign of estrogen dominance in that luteal phase. And um, also just props to you for allowing me to talk about my periods. (laughs) I know you're a doc and it's like, you're like, I see this all the time, but it's, it's also very rare to have a a male doc that I feel so comfortable talking about all of these things with, because often there's a lot of shame, right? Like a lot of women are really scared to talk about their period or they don't even realize that they're moody or that they're sleep or that they feel hot. And then when their period comes, it's like, oh, we can't talk about this. This is like, you know, we're taught this culturally as well. So thank you for, uh, for being so open. And uh, it's, yeah. that's, that's really my, my job here is to keep a uh, hold space and make sure that people are comfortable. And, and I do that with my patients. I make sure that, and, and about 70% of the people that I work with are female. And so I really do have to understand these things. And it, it's, it's important that people understand that it is a safe space. And from my perspective, and, and I tend to surround myself with quite a few of the male types that, that are open to supporting and, and really being there as a supportive person for their wives. I have a daughter who is eventually going to be going through all this as well. I want to be able to support her and, and we're actually on track to have a second daughter as well. So I'm really going to be experiencing this hor- whole hormonal cascade uh, constantly in my life. So I really want to make sure I can support them. Uh, the best that I possibly can. So I appreciate that comment. I'd love to kind of dig into some of the nuances in regards to cortisol patterning that goes along with that. We talked a little bit about getting testing done, and I'm a huge proponent, as I know you are, of the Dutch test as being the best way to really objectively see what the hormone pattern looks like, what the numbers are at, what's the metabolism like. You're talking about the 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, 16-hydroxy estrogen metabolism pathways. I'd love to kind of dig into a little bit more on the organs that are required to be functioning at a high level to make sure that cortisol patterning and our ability to handle stress is optimal as well, and how our hormonal sex hormones specifically can actually affect our adrenals as well. I'd love to kind of dig into that. So let's talk a little bit about cortisol, what it is, and and what you see from a pattern perspective when it comes to the 28-day cycle. Sure. So I would say for most of us, including many functional medicine doctors, we tend to vilify cortisol. It's like, this is the worst. It's the stress hormone. It's like, well, yes, in the chronic sense, right? So we always want to understand that when we have a stress response, it is actually a beautifully designed, elegant system. So if there is let's call it a tiger, like the proverbial tiger, right? Like, or, you know, maybe in modern life that might be, you have to slam on your brakes, right? Like you're driving in traffic, someone cuts you off. You have to respond really quickly. What happens is cortisol, uh, which is produced from the uh, adrenal cortex. It's a glutocorticoid. It is going to flood the system. And what it is going to do, it is a counter regulatory hormone, meaning that in the acute set, when you are slamming on the brake or your toddler is about to run out into uh, traffic, right? It is going to oppose the actions of insulin. So insulin is designed to get glucose into the cell so that the cell can make energy. Cortisol is going to be like, no, 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 no. We need the glucose here right now because I need to throw it into the muscles. I need to throw it into the periphery because you're going to need to very quickly slam on the brake 
or you're going to need to sprint after your toddler before she gets in harm's way, or you're going to need to fight or flight. If it's a tiger, right? You're going to either need to get away from the tiger or the, you know, the thing that's threatening your survival, or you're going to fight it. So it is designed to completely take over everything. So it basically shuts down when we think about systems in the body, shuts down reproduction, shuts down your immune system, shuts down your digestion, shuts down really all of like the central, like the midline functions and throws everything to the periphery because you need your muscles to fight or flight. The other thing that it will do is will also make, it will increase clotting factors in the blood. Uh, so it makes your, your blood a little bit like thicker, cloudier. And that's because if there is an injury, you are able to heal from it faster. You're not going to bleed to death, right? So these are some of the things that we see classically with men and women, but women specifically, we also have a different kind of stress response. So that's often called fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Women also have this other layering called tend and befriend. So when we are stressed for us, women don't start wars, right? What we do is we call our friends or we rearrange. Like I used to think I was crazy. Like when I was in chiropractic school, I had like 10 exams in a row and I was like, you know what I need to do right now? I need to clean my makeup brushes. Like it needs to be done right now. Or I need, or I need to like reorganize that junk drawer in the kitchen that like, you know, it's like I had like anatomy the next day and I was like, you know, I got to do this thing. So this is a female specific response. It is because we are craving connection. So what we're doing when we go out for, when we, you know, find some girlfriends and it's like, you know, girls night, or we tend to our environment or we tend to our children is we are now releasing oxytocin or we're getting the benefits, the neurological benefits of oxytocin. So oxytocin is like the love hormone, right? It's the hormone that we've all heard of. Like when you're breastfeeding, it's like the bonding hormone, but we also need it as adults. So for women, if you are feeling really stressed, what you might find is going out for a walk with your girl, like finding, you know, a walking club or like girls that you trust, like women that you trust. And I often say, you know, like girls night is like neurologically essential, right? For our health and well-being, um, because it allows us to connect with other people. And this is why female friendships are so important. And, um, you know, we can kind of go off on another tangent around how we've been, women have been taught like not to trust other women, but it's actually incredibly, incredibly beneficial for you to have, even if it's just one person, even if it's just one friend that, you know, you can call when you can have the ugly cry and everything's falling apart. And you feel safe that she's not going to, you know, just like Instagram it or whatever, right? Like Instagram all your troubles. So that tend and befriend response is something also for women to be aware of. And it is our desire to connect with both our environment and the people around us that is also keeping us safe. So kind of back to the, the acute response, we were talking about this, like running after the toddler or slamming on the brakes or getting away from the tiger. Like I said, it is an absolutely gorgeous response system when it is done in the short term. The problem is that that often in modern life never turns off, right? So instead of sprinting after the toddler every day, maybe you are heading to a job where your coworker is sucking your soul dry, right? Or your boss is, doesn't appreciate you. Or maybe you are in a relationship that you find it maybe has run its course, but you're still in it. And there's some toxicity and resentment and things that are kind of, you know, developing there. And we actually see, I was just interviewing, um, Dr. Christiane Northrup and oh my gosh, what a goddess. And she talks a lot about astrology. So I don't know too much about this, but she was saying at the age 42, a lot of women start to really reevaluate 
all of their, it's like the year for them to be like, okay, is this marriage still something that is serving me? You know, is this job, am I actually doing the things that are, you know, meaningful to my soul? Cause this, this age, apparently something about Uranus and Pluto. And I, 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 like her brilliance, like I was just like, oh my God, she's so amazing and beautiful and amazing. But she was saying something about this idea that this is when our soul starts speaking louder. And this is when that divine feminine, that like Kundalini energy starts to come up and it starts to impact our decisions. So as a woman, you might find in your forties, you are starting to reevaluate all the things around you because it's that chronic stress. Like when the boss is always there or when the partner or, you know, the whatever stressor, that chronic low grade stress is non-relenting, it's unrelenting over time. This is when we can start to get derangement in our sex hormones, as you were mentioning. It can have deleterious effects on brain health. When you are constantly throwing things into the periphery, I mean, you we talked about some of the systems that get shut down, right? Like not your digestion is going to be affected. So we all know that you're not what you eat, but you are what you absorb. If you don't have the appropriate energetic focus from your body going into your digestive tract, you're not going to be able to absorb your nutrients properly. So there's going to be you're laying the foundation for nutrient deficiencies, right? B12, really common in many women, as you were, as you mentioned, magnesium, vitamin D, these are like almost like until proven otherwise, like I assume someone doesn't have enough D or magnesium if she's a woman. Zinc's another one. So we have digestion, reproduction, right? So this is, you you know, when you are chronically stressed, your reproductive system is not going to be working the way that you want. And what does that mean? Well, that's going to mean that your periods are going to be painful you are going to have this influence, like it is going to now influence the estrogen metabolism as we were talking about. So you have this tendency for estrogen now to become a catecholamine. And now we are going to see this faulty and deranged estrogen metabolism, um, which is really important because when we think about a woman who is at about age 35, we start to see this stepwise attenuation of progesterone, Mm -hmm. which means that she's already without any stressors in her life, she's already naturally more inclined to be estrogen dominant in that second half of her cycle as she gets older. And at some point, like 47, 46, 47, I noticed there's a bit of a switch. So now we have progesterone has, has been, you know, declining for like five, 10 years. And now we see estrogen starts, starts to decline. So then you have this low estrogen environment, which has its own host of, um, symptoms, um, as well, which we talk about in the book, like in the book, there's literally like a choose your own. It's like high estrogen, low estrogen, high testosterone, low testosterone, high cortisol. Like we kind of go through the whole all of the different types of hormonal predispositions and what to do about it. So have I answered your question? I can still go on, but I'm like, yeah, no, I'd love that. <laughs> I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Cause I know that we, we have that natural progression of, of progesterone to come down uh, around the, the mid to late forties. Um, and it tends to happen. You said around 35, where it starts to really come down. Uh, fertility issues are becoming very, very common. And, and right. we're actually now able to talk about it. I imagine it's been there for quite some time, but now the, the dialogue has, has really come out in, into the forefront. One of the most common things that I hear from, from patients is fertility issues are very common, uh, miscarriages, inability to, to conceive effectively. Is there anything that you can bring up in regards to how cortisol accelerates that and actually makes it happen earlier where we're starting to attenuate that progesterone levels and why the progesterone level would be so low early on? 
Well, I think it's it's really related to what we were talking about before. When we think about when cortisol is chronically elevated, then we are going to see that the energy of the body is now in survival mode. It's no longer in thrive, in that thriving and expansion. And uh, it's, it's more like scarcity and lack, right? So now when you are constantly stressed, all you're worried about is surviving. So yeah. you're going to have a whole bunch of blood pooling in the periphery, a whole bunch of nervous system activity pooling in the periphery. And then your reproductive system is not going to be able to do its job because it doesn't have the attention that it needs. It doesn't have the energetic resources that it needs. So I think that when we think about cortisol and when we think about getting a a handle on it, a lot of times it can seem really overwhelming because a woman might be like, listen, I got two kids. I got to get them out the door every morning. I have a husband who is, you know, whatever, a boss. Like I, you know, what I hear a lot is women are just like, I'm trying, I'm trying my best, but I'm literally at maximum tension. There's like literally nothing else that I can do. And what I would say to a woman who is listening, who may identify in that, you know, in that particular scenario is that it actually doesn't take a lot. Like you don't need to go on a silent retreat in Tibet for the next month and like say sayonara to your life. Like it can be in just small little chunks. So you can find, I know, I pinky promise you that I know you can find five minutes to just walk outside and take off your shoes, get your feet on the earth as cold as it mean I'm in Toronto I do this all all year long even when it's snow I get my feet on the earth because you will now start to integrate the charge of the earth you will get the ions from the air and that in and of itself can bring you into a parasympathetic state and if you say to me listen I'm not getting outside I don't care I don't like the cold then what you can do like I have in the background here I just have some essential oils that are just perfuming the my room here and they are uh tree oils so right now I have Douglas fir so there's something really really special about smelling trees <laughs> like there's something about being in the presence of like old trees that have been here long before we have and they'll you know persist long after we have um to really be able to connect with the earth in that way so it can be just as simple as earthing it can be, you know, just taking five deep breaths, like hands on your belly, listening, like allowing for the belly, like the diaphragmatic breathing. There's, you know, you've probably talked about this around square breathing and two X breath in terms of vagus nerve activation. So you're inhaling and then you exhale for twice as long as you inhale, that is going to stimulate the vagus nerve, which is a parasympathetic nerve. And when we think about how awesome this nerve is, it comes from the brainstem. It's actually called the wandering nerve, which I know you Again, it's like you wrote the book on it, but you know, for the listeners, right? Like this is the nerve that wanders and it attaches to every single organ. So if you can activate your vagus nerve and you can activate that parasympathetic nervous system, then you can bring yourself into that healing state. So it's really a simple, simple things. Like you can do things like essential oils, get outside, get some fresh air, you know, take, maybe take some vitamin D. We're all, you know, moving into the, you know, we're kind of when this, when this podcast is going to be recorded, it's going to be kind of in the dead of winter. So really, really important for you to make sure that you're getting appropriate vitamin D and some breath work like that, even though you may not see this like instant, you know, change, like you still might have your kid run, run into the room in the, in the next five minutes and still have some sort of stress response. 
but it is the accumulation of these habits over time. And that's the, that's sort of the other point that I, I think is really important in this like instant gratification society. We don't give ourselves the runway to heal. We don't give ourselves the grace to be beginners, right? We don't give ourselves the grace to suck because, you know, all beginners were never kind of wobbly. We have like 10, you know, 10 left feet and we don't really know what we're doing. But if you give yourself just some time and patience, the same way that you would like never yell at a newborn for not being able to walk, right? You would never say to the newborn, God, you're such an idiot. Like, how do you not know how to crawl yet? Like you would never say that to a newborn. You would say, oh my gosh, baby, like you tried so hard today to do your tummy time. Like mommy loves you. You know, you have to also take that and mirror that back to you and say, listen, it's been 40 years. No one's ever taught me how to do this. I'm just starting out. So let me give myself five minutes a day and I'll do it for the next two weeks and see how I feel. Right. But we are, it's like, oh, well, I did it five minutes. I'm still stressed. Like it doesn't work. No, it's, you have to, you have to give yourself time because your body, you have to give her the time to step into the woman, step into the physical form that you want her to be, but it just takes a little bit of time and some love as well. I love that. So many of my patients come in and they, they barely know how to breathe effectively and being able to center yourself, being able to learn and, and give yourself space and time to learn and how to do these things effectively. We've essentially taken 30, 40 years of our lives where we haven't been breathing correctly. There's like a year early on, which none of us clearly remember, but if you ever watch a baby breathe, they're breathing diaphragmatically, they're breathing naturally. And we've essentially trained ourselves out of that. Even with my three-year-old, I, I have to spend time retraining her on making sure that she's belly breathing, that she's mm -hmm. taking deep, calm breaths. And so imagine if we've been doing that, essentially breathing through our chest, breathing with our accessory breathing muscles, activating that stress response, activating that cortisol for 30, 40, 50 years, it's going to take time to retrain that. It's going to take time. and so. We have to allow ourselves that leniency, allow ourselves that space to, to learn, to grow, to do these things when the stress levels come up, when we start to feel like those symptoms are, are becoming problematic. So absolutely love that. Yeah. And we also, when you think about when you're stressed, what do you do, right? You, you hold your breath. And then when you do end up breathing, you're breathing from these upper accessory muscles, right? You're just kind of working the upper lobes of the lungs. So like, so when I was in practice, I would say, okay, someone, I would say to a patient, like take a deep breath and they go, you know, and like their shoulders for the listener who's listening to this on audio, like their shoulders would literally become earrings. Like they would, it would come all the way up rather than everything being relaxed, but the belly coming out and in. And again, that's like another cultural thing. Like women are like, hold it in, like suck in the tummy, you know? And it's like, no, let the belly relax, let your belly open, because this is actually how you bring oxygen into these deeper lobes of the lung. This is how you bathe the lower lobes of the lung. And then you can also perfuse the bloodstream with oxygen because you have, I mean, the lower lobes of the lung often underused, like the largest parts of the lung. So it really does help with, um, oxygenating the body and like feeling when you are, when you are hyper oxygenating the body in terms of some types of breath work, you feel so relaxed and some, in some cases you can even feel like high, you know? So it's really, really, really important for us to remember to deep breathe and to use our diaphragm. I'd love to take a bit of a, a step to another direction here. If you're open to it, speaking from a male point of view, I'd love to learn what are some of the tools, some of the, the habits that men can take on that can help them support 
their wives, their girlfriends, their daughters, whoever it is around them, their moms. I know for a long time, it was something that I've always wanted to be around uh, to support my mom, to support my wife as she's gone through whatever challenges she's experienced through pregnancy, through the lack of sleep in the postpartum periods. What are some strategies that men can do to show up, to be present, to support their, uh, their loved ones? Well, I think listening to this podcast is a really good step, like understanding what's happening to her and how that's distinct from what your experience might be. So we've talked about like women are the moon, men are the sun, like a man will go through his hormonal, you know, milieu or his hormonal cycle in about a day, whereas a woman will go through it over the course of a month. So we see a man going through, you know, kind of peaks and lows of his testosterone and his estrogens over the course of one day. So it may not seem like that big of a deal for him, but when he can understand that it takes a woman, you know, 28, 29, 30 days to go through what he can go through in a month, I think that that will start, or in a day rather, I think that he will start to have more empathy for her. I think that trying, there's this really funny video, I'll send it to you if you want to put it in your show notes, where there's this, this woman and she has like a nail in her head. Have you seen this video? Oh my, it's so fun. So she has a nail in her head and the guy's like, oh my God, like, let me just fix this for you. Let me just like take the nail out. And she's like, I don't want you to fix it for me. I just want to talk about how the nail in my head is making me feel, you know? <laughs> so it's this really funny thing. Cause the guy's like, listen, I could like, we could get rid of this problem if we just took the nail out of your head. And she's like, no, but I just want to talk about how it makes me feel, you know? <laughs> so understand that a woman is going to naturally have more of a verbal, you know, she's going to want to talk about her feelings. And that helps her download things too, right? Like as she's talking, that's how she kind of sorts out how she's feeling in many cases. So just holding space the way that you have uh, for me today in terms of letting that, that woman talk and express her feelings without jumping in and needing to fix it. Because I know that the men, you know, you love your woman, you want to see her thrive, you want to see her, you know, self-actualize. And a lot of times men will jump to like, how can I fix it for her? How can I just like fix it for her? And the, that's not really the point. Like the point is not to fix it for her. It's she has to get there on her own. But in the process of her getting there on her own, she's going to want to talk to you about it. So understanding that there's that kind of neurological difference, like you want to fix, she wants to talk, I think can be really useful, especially when like, I'll, I'll send you the link for this YouTube video. It's so funny. And like, he finally is like, okay, tell me about your nail. Like, tell me how it feels. And she's like, oh, thank you so much. And then they like go into kiss. And of course, like they hit the nail and she's like, ah, and he's like, why can't you just take it? It's so funny. But it, I think it's, it really highlights a beautiful difference between the way that we communicate and the way that we approach problems. So listening to this podcast, understanding what she's going through, and then just holding space for her to express herself in a way that makes her feel like she has been seen and she has been heard and she has been understood, I think is, is really important. I love that. And it all starts really with just awareness and approaching the situation with empathy. So thank you for that. I will always make sure to hold space. And I absolutely love kind of the reference to men are from Mars, women are from Venus, where it's one wants to talk about the issue where uh, one wants to provide solutions. And, and it's really important for us to not go out and provide unsolicited advice or, or just jump in and say, here's the problem, let me fix it from the male perspective. So yeah, we, we will definitely be uh, sharing this with our male listeners as well to make sure that they are able to hold space for their, for their female loved ones, for sure. I'm so excited about your book. I would love to uh, 
just chat a little bit about the book itself, how it came along and, and what your goal is to help support people with through the book. So my goal with the book is really to help women become like the leading lady in their own life, right? Like to help understand what it is that she needs at different times and how to appropriately respond. Like it's sort of like a, I really want it to be a perennial seller that someone can come back like five years from now, 10 years from now and say, okay, this is what's going on for me. Like, let me go to this chapter and let me figure it out. So in, in the book, we walk through many different strategies and actionable items. We talked about one of them today, which is how we can alter the macronutrient composition. We also talk about how to resistance train and why that's really important and how to actually alter our resistance training through the month, how to alter our supplementation through the month. Cause that's also very important. And then before we even get to some of that hardcore science, we do, I do talk about the importance of setting up your day with, as a woman. And I've done a couple of podcasts about this, like mo the traditional advice around morning routines, like waking up at, you know, 3am and making your tea that you've imported from China and then doing an hour sauna or Japan and then doing, you know, an hour sauna and then like a crazy workout and then a cold plunge. It's like, it's very Ben Greenfield. I love Ben again, like someone that I love and respect, but it's also a very male driven thing, right? So I want, I really wanted to highlight the idea that most morning routines, the way that they have been outlined are pretty sexist in that. And I don't mean that in like an intentional way. Like, I don't think Ben is like, listen, like this is like, everyone has to do this. And if you do your, like, he's not like that, but he is doing it from his perspective, which is a male perspective, right? So we want to be thinking about women who are usually the primary caregivers, right? We are usually, and like for the longest time when my kids were, you know, three and five, like my morning routine consisted of them, you know, toddling into my bed, jumping in and waking me up. That was my morning routine, right? So I might find like five minutes between you know, making the breakfast, packing the lunch bag and whatever. So I just wanted to highlight. And in the book, we talk about different ways that a woman in different stages, if she has children, what that might look like for her in terms of how she can not feel guilty about not having the capacity to do a three hour morning routine every day. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about evening routines as well. Same kind of thing I find, and I don't know if you found this doc, but I, I find that as the sun goes down, there's this inverse relationship with anxiety and sunshine. Like as the sun goes down, the anxiety for the woman starts to come up and she starts thinking about you know, you know, brooding on all the things that happened that day. Maybe she's anticipating negative, you know, scenarios for the next day. And then we get this like wired and tired sort of presentation where she wants to sleep, but her brain is racing, right? So we talk a little bit about that and how to mitigate that. We talk about gratitude. We talk about breath work. We, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of specific items in the book that we talk about there. And that's really, I mean, when we're thinking about intuitive eating, we're thinking about balancing our hormones. Like if you can just set up a morning and an evening routine that works for you, that are simple, they are flexible. There's like, we are just cutting the cords on the guilt. Like you don't get to it one day. Like I don't get to my morning routine every day, you know, and it's fine. As long as you can say, listen, like I'm good. I'm just going to get back on when I, when I get back on and know that it's not the, it's not perfection, but it is the commitment to practicing it. You know, this is why doctors call their work a practice. They don't call it a perfect because we are practicing on patients over time and we accrue experience. And it's the same with you. This is a practice that you do every day. We're not expecting you to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall off the wagon. It's part of the human experience. 
Yeah, I love that. The goal is resilience, not perfection, and being Correct. able to jump back on the horse when the time is right. I, I have my own days where the morning routine doesn't happen. I have my own challenges as well, as do all of our patients and, and generally the people that we are around. And uh, allowing ourselves some flexibility, allowing ourselves some space is the most important thing, because if we literally come out and say, no, you didn't do this, it's the end of the world, you, you've essentially created a whole new stress pattern, you've created a whole new negative emotional pattern, and, and the ramifications of that are so negative. So thank you for that. And, and for sharing everything that's uh, coming up in the book, I'm really, really excited to grab my own copy and to be able to run through it. And to be able to share a lot of the wisdom and the uh, amazing practical advice and tips that you've got in there. I'm really excited to share that. Not only with my wife, with my mom, with my daughters eventually, but also for myself to be able to learn and to share with my patients as well. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Where can people pick up the book? I imagine it would be everywhere, but I'd love to kind of yeah, you can go. You you can go anywhere. You can go to Amazon, uh, any online retailer. Uh, you can go to the BettyBodyBook.com, uh, and you can uh, figure it out there. We also have lots of little bonuses in the in the uh, book as well. So I've put together like morning, like we've put together diets and fitness routines, are all good stuff. So BettyBodyBook.com. Also, it's really fun to say BettyBodyBook.com. <laughs> Uh, so you can find me there and you can, you know, if you want to find me on Instagram, you can find me at Dr. Stephanie Estima and then, yeah. And like any online retail, any, anywhere you can find the book. And uh, I'm usually pretty active on social media as well. And if you loved this episode and you want to hear more from Dr. Stephanie herself, I highly, highly recommend the better podcast being able to kind of dig into what she goes into her geeky magic, which is absolutely wonderful. I love every one of those episodes between you and major. I, I love the interaction and I am so honored to have had you here to share your wisdom with my audience here today. So thank you so much. If you're interested, all of the links that we talked about will be in the show notes. So please uh, join us on the site for that. And for anybody who wants to continue to listen, uh, I'm excited to share more of these amazing interviews with wonderful people ongoing. All right. So have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks again, Steph, for coming on. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. 